God, this is going to be a tough, this is going to be a tough crowd right here, isn't it, Brian? Golly, man, I thought you guys would be all excited about being in church this morning. And uh, are you excited? I can't tell. There are not as many of you here right now. I think uh, a lot of people might be coming to the, the next service or the 1115 because we have the Easter egg hunt today and the picnic. And of course, uh, everybody's invited to that. So um, just in case you haven't gotten the word. Uh, we'll be serving about 12.30 today, and again, that ought to be a lot of fun. So uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. I've been excited about a day for a while now. Uh, I hate to see Joseph leave. You know, we, we've been in a series in the book of uh, Genesis talking about the life of Joseph for uh, a couple of months, actually about three, maybe four months, but, uh, but I am excited about turning now toward Jesus and we're going to be in this journey through the Gospel of John probably um, maybe through the end of this year. And uh, we're going to walk through this and unpack the, the life of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and who he was and what he was about. Uh, I heard a, a funny story not long ago about a preschool teacher who was working with their kids one day in art class, and this didn't happen here at the bridge. It would be great if it did, but it it didn't. Uh, But this uh, little girl was drawing, and it was just like a freelance sort of thing. They could draw a picture of of anything they wanted to. And this this little girl was uh, drawing a picture that looked like it might be a man, but the teacher wasn't really sure. And so she just asked the little girl, she said, Honey, uh, who or what are you drawing? She said, Well, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus. And the preschool teacher said, well, honey, nobody really knows what Jesus looks like. And she said, they will in a minute. <laughs> you know, most of us have some idea about what Jesus looked like, or um, we have some idea about who Jesus might have been or what he came to do. But most of us have this fragmented picture of who Jesus is. And uh, hopefully over the, the next few weeks and months, beginning today, you'll be able to put together a more complete picture of who Jesus is. Now, some, some would say it's, uh, it's kind of odd that we're going to start a series and start talking about Jesus uh, at the end of the gospel. Like today, we're going to be in John chapter 19, if you just want to go ahead and find that in your Bible or in your smartphone or your tablet or um, also in your message notes in the bulletin. So it, it's kind of odd that you're going to start in John 19 because that's almost at the end of the gospel and you're at the end of Jesus' life. Well, actually, that's where all the gospel writers began. The gospel writers who were really preachers or they were writing down the sermons of the, uh, of the disciples, they all begin with the passion stories of Jesus. They start with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And then they go back and start giving information. And I hate to call it biographical information because this is so much more than that. This is not just a documentary for, about Jesus and his life, and those kind of things is so much more than that. But it's like they give us everything else from the beginning of the gospel all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus to answer this question. And you'll hear this a lot over the next few months. Who is the man hanging on the cross? 
So it's the right thing to do to start with the cross. You can't understand Jesus without a cross. You can't understand who Jesus was and what he was all about until you watch him suffer and die for the sins of the whole world. You just can't. So we're not really starting at the end. We are starting with the beginning. There are a couple of things that you ought to know before we just dive into chapter 19. Jesus has been on trial for his life. He's been arrested, um, brought before Pilate, sent to the high priest of the Jewish authorities. He's gone back and forth between different Roman leaders, and ultimately he is dumped in Pilate's lap. And so Pilate is going to finally have to deal with Jesus. Now listen. Pilate did everything he could to let Jesus go. In fact, you'll see that about three different times, he says, I find no fault with this man. He, he does everything he can. Well, not everything he can, but he does so much to just try to get Jesus turned out. And ultimately, that's not God's plan, and it's not what happens. There, there are going to be some things in this chapter of Jesus' life and his story that could be gross and gory, but because the writers don't spend, or all the gospel writers don't spend a lot of time talking about the gory details of Jesus' beating and his crucifixion, I'm going to just barely mention them and move beyond them. But what I would like for you to do for the next few minutes is listen to a story that is familiar to probably most of us, but I want you to pretend like you are hearing this for the first time. I don't want you to just sit back and assume, oh yeah, I've heard this story before, and I, I know how this goes, and so I, I can just sit back and play tic-tac-toe on my message notes or something like that, and I hate to give you that idea. But, but don't do that. I, I want you to hang on the dialogue, not, not only today, but every weekend when we come in and we start unpacking the life and the story of Jesus. I want you to just hang on every word because these are words of truth and life. All right. Let's dive in. You ready? Here we go. John 19. Then Pilate, who is the Roman prefect, or kind of like the, the governor of Judea, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face.
This flogging is a terrible, terrible thing. Have you heard of this before? How many of you grew up on a farm and you think you know what flogging is? You ever been flogged by a chicken? You haven't? I, you, you got, y'all don't know what that is? All right, we'll just move on past that. Let me think of something else. What these Romans would do, usually before a person was going to be crucified, is they would beat them almost into shock first. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me tell you, and again, I'm, I don't plan on giving you many gory details, but crucifixion is about the worst form of death that a government could inflict on people for capital punishment. It was just horrible and cruel. And the Romans had perfected it. They were so good at killing people this way. But even they seemed to have somewhat of a heart about it, if you can call that, because they developed this whole flogging thing to sort of put a person's body in shock, even half kill them. In fact, many people didn't even survive the flogging. But they would flog them, beat them, almost completely to death before they ever nailed them on a cross. Uh, This flogging was sort of like a whip. Sometimes it's called um, a cat of nine tails, but it would have a piece of wood probably wrapped in leather about this long. It was very strong, thick, made just to fit into um, a, a Roman soldier's big fist. It would have strands off of it Sometimes there were three, I've seen them with six, I've seen them with nine. And in these strands of leather or rope, they would have pieces of bone and glass that were made to not only hit you, because the real torture of this was not just that it would hit you, but it was that the pieces of metal and glass and bone would actually reach into a person's skin like a fish hook. And then the real hurt was when that Roman soldier would rip it away and that would pull back flesh. And there's stories of people that once they had been flogged, they could be hit as many as 40 times, which would almost for sure kill a person. Uh, very often after flogging, you could see a person's internal organs. That's how bad that this was. So they've, they've beaten Jesus. They flogged him in this way. And so he is just really a bloody mess. And one of the things that these soldiers in particular would like to do is play what's called the king's game. And so they're mocking Jesus um, as being a king. And I'll, I'll say more about that in just a few minutes. Once more, Pilate came out. Now, apparently, Jesus has been flogged somewhere that everybody hasn't watched. And so now, Pilate, who has likely been back there, has come back out before the people. And Pilate came out and said to the Jews, and this, there, there's a crowd of Jewish people there, but he's speaking to the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders who were responsible for having these charges brought against Jesus. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I am bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for charging him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Now remember, I told you that Pilate doesn't seem to want to kill Jesus. What I think that he has in his mind is that if he can let them see how badly Jesus has been beaten, that'll put an end to all of this. 
Because listen to me, when they bring Jesus out and Pilate says, Echo homo, behold the man, he was probably barely recognizable as a man. He, he looked like he just stepped out of a horror film. And I think that for Pilate, that's the point. He wants them to be horrified so that it'll put an end to all of this. But actually, it, 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 it doesn't. As soon as the chief priest, this, this means the leaders of the leaders in their religious um, in, their, in their religion. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, instead of having mercy and showing pity, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And listen, when you, when you hear this, when you read a story like this, I mean, especially this one, don't let the words be wooden. D- don't let them go in one ear and right out the other. I mean, think about how this, this would look. Here is Pilate, he says, behold the man. He said, look at him. Look at him. You bunch of hypocrites, look at this man. He's near dead as it is. And when they just yell for his crucifixion, it's like, Pilate, he doesn't know what else to say. You take him. I'm I'm done with this. I, I can't get through to you people. I find no basis for a charge against him. Verse seven, the Jewish leaders insisted we have a law. And here they're getting at the truth of this. We have a law. See, up to this point, they have accused Jesus of being a revolutionary So what they have sort of made an argument about is that Jesus is stirring up trouble. They haven't tried to make it a religious thing because Pilate didn't give two cents about their religion. But he had to care an awful lot about Pax Romana, Roman peace. And so now the truth starts to come out. These guys are giving away the real reason that they have brought these charges against Jesus. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And in scriptures, blasphemy could get you stoned to death. And that's what they're really upset about. They couldn't care less about Pax Romana. They they couldn't care about Roman peace. In fact, some of these people have given their whole lives to overthrowing the Roman government, but now they're trying to use the government as their ally. And so they're saying, look, we have a law. This man has got to die, but they can't kill Jesus because the Romans would not allow them to enforce their laws as far as capital punishment. So they couldn't kill Jesus. They're trying to get Pilate to do their dirty work. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Because Pilate sees this going the wrong way. The Roman leaders back home, the Caesar, he didn't care who was in charge of Judea. It, it, Judea was just an outlying 
area to the Romans. They, they didn't care about Judea. It was an armpit for a leader. Uh, you, to, to be in Pilate's position, you were either on your way down the Roman ladder or on your way up. This is not a place someone would just pick. So Caesar back at home and the, the other Roman government officials back in Rome, they didn't care who was in charge of Judea. They just wanted everything kept calmly, uh, kept calm and peaceful. And so if Pilate couldn't do that, they would send someone else. And the Jewish people were always clashing with the Roman, uh, with the Roman uh, government. And so there's always this, um, this tension between them. And Pilate had been reported a couple of times by the Jews. There had been serious talks amongst them. And so now Pilate is afraid because if this thing gets out of hand, he could lose his own head. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside of the palace. And now he begins to question Jesus again. Where do you come from? What's your story? Now, I don't want to confuse this. So make sure you listen closely. There are old reports that the Roman Catholic in the earliest of days sainted Pilate because they say that before his death, Pilate became a follower of Jesus. There's no way to prove that for sure. But let me tell you one thing that I do feel like I see happening right here, and that is Pilate is not sure if this is just a normal man or not. There's a reason that these religious leaders want to kill him. And Pilate doesn't live in a vacuum. He's the leader of Judea, but he's heard about Jesus. You, You don't kill people. You don't bring people from death to life again without somebody knowing about it, like like Pilate. I think he doesn't know what to do with Jesus, and so he's asking questions. Who are you, man? What are you really all about? What is your deal? Why are you enduring all this? Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or crucify you, which is kind of ironic to me because Pilate, who probably is a typical Roman narcissistic type of a leader, he thinks he's in control and really he's not. And don't you love how Jesus is in control? Jesus doesn't seem to be out of his mind. He doesn't seem to be out of his senses. He's not begging for his life, none of those things. Jesus is completely under control. He answered, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And I don't think he said that disrespectfully. I don't think he said it arrogantly. But he says it in a way to let Pilate know that these things are really not under his control. He says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Listen, Pilate was responsible for his decisions or his indecision and his actions. 
But Jesus is saying, I'm not holding this against you. It's the ones who handed me over to you who ought to know better, who have a far greater sin on them. Listen to verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. That's almost unthinkable. But he's struggling with Jesus. Listen, let me me tell you guys this. It's Holy Week coming. And I know that there's, there's lots of reasons to be excited. I mean, next Friday is Good Friday. Uh, do the kids get out a half a day of school on Friday? They go all day? They're out all day Friday? And so I, I know that really that kicks off spring break for everybody. Maybe, maybe you have plans to be out of town for spring break, and I, I, don't, I don't hold that against you. I, I think the greater sin belongs to the Cabarrus County school board, they should not have spring break start on Good Friday and going all the way through Easter. They just shouldn't. When my kids were in elementary school, we had to deal with the same sorts of things and all that, so I I understand it, but listen to me. You have friends and family You have neighbors who are just like Pilate. Maybe they're not religious. They don't go to church. They have heard some things about Jesus, but they they don't really know what to do with him. They are people that I would call spiritual seekers. They're looking for the truth. I think that if you, if you look at Pilate and his conversations with Jesus and his dealings with the Jewish authorities, I think that you would agree with me that he is looking for truth. He is trying to find out about this whole Jesus person. Just like many of your friends and family members. I want to ask you this week to care about them enough to tell them about Jesus and invite them to church on Easter Sunday. Six out of every ten people who don't go to church say they would go to church if someone would just invite them. So invite them. I mean, I love that Pilate is at least struggling with who Jesus is. And he's trying everything he can do to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. That's a threat. What that means is if you don't handle this, we will handle it. We'll start a writing campaign to Caesar. We'll make sure this gets back to Rome. We'll make sure that the Caesar knows that you're not doing everything you can to keep Roman peace. 
This man claims to be king. He's a revolutionary, so he should die like revolutionaries. He should die like a troublemaker. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. One of the things that I plan to do during this series through John is to treat it a little bit like HGTV and the History Channel. And so there are some things and places that I want you to see during this series And one of the things that I I want you to understand, not just about the gospel of John, but about all of the scriptures that we look at, you can find the places that we're talking about in the dirt. You you can find these places, these these things that are mentioned, you you can find, you you can go to them. Trevor, do we have... um, Picture number one back there. Go to, maybe it's, go to, um, go to the next one. The next one. All right. This is the stone pavement. This is on the outer edge of the Antonio Fortress. This is where the judgment seat would have been, which is where the leader comes, like Pilate, comes to pronounce judgment against someone. This is about, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 feet underground right now. So what they've done is they've excavated down to about the first century, and this is that stone pavement. So can you see the pointer? So you can see that obviously this is stone pavers. Can you make out that this is a circle in the stones? And it might be hard for you guys to see, but there are other carvings there in the floor. This picture to the right, to my right, is exposed differently than the one to the left. I did that so that you could maybe see this a little bit better because it's so hard to see in a photo. But these places are right together. This is probably the same area where Jesus would have been flogged, tortured, and where they played the king's game. It's what the Roman soldiers would do just to make fun and mock someone who is a revolutionary, someone who's trying to take over. They would, they would treat him like a, a mockery. Um, in a kingdom. And this is a game board. Nobody knows how it's played exactly. But it's likely because of where this is located that that's the place where Jesus would have been with Pilate when sentence is pronounced against him. But you can go and see that. Maybe one day you'll go to the Holy Land with me and we can just go down there and see it together. 
But it's there. You can find these places. Let me keep going. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Now, now Pilate, because he's had to make the decision, he's going to send Jesus out to be crucified. Now he's sticking a thumb in their eye. He's going to take some shots at, at, at them. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. They, they hated no one worse than they hated Caesar, except Jesus. You know, have 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 you realized that Jesus is caught between religion and politics? The Jewish authorities hate Jesus because of the impact and the influence and the message that he's bringing to the people. Everywhere Jesus goes, there are large crowds that follow in to listen to him because when Jesus teaches, when he explains to them the scriptures, he doesn't talk to them like they're stupid. He treats them like they are people that God loves. Jesus is not trying to keep an old, dead system of rituals alive. He's trying to talk to people about how to have a relationship with God, and they hate him for it. Finally, verse 16, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, a part of crucifying a revolutionary like Jesus was being accused of, meant that there would be a parade. And in, in the parade, the person who's being crucified would have to carry the cross beam, which could have weighed anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds, so think about the beating that Jesus has endured, and now he's carrying that big cross beam, and he's going through the city partly as a warning to everyone. And they would have taken the longest route so that all of the Jews who live in Jerusalem and all of the Jews and the Greeks uh, and people who have come in from other places in the world just for the Passover could see what happens to troublemakers. Because these people are preparing for the Passover. The Passover is right around the corner. And the thing that the Romans feared most during this time is that there would be an insurrection and that the people would rise up and try to overthrow the Roman government. So they were quick to try to put these sorts of things down. So Golgotha, place of the skull. And I think, Trevor, we have a, a picture back there. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing one of the great songs to me that's ever been written. Um, it's called The Old Rugged Cross. But there's a part in that song that it, it's not really true. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The truth is the cross was not up on a hill far, far away. The cross, in fact, would be maybe just a slight bit taller than the one we have right here on stage. 
And Jesus wouldn't have been carried up on, up on the top of a hill like this. Instead, Jesus was crucified in the bend of a holiday road called the road to Damascus. It's right outside the city because they wouldn't kill people in the city. They killed them outside the city, probably at this place right here. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But it, it was on the main road where people would literally walk right by Jesus and he was like an object lesson, a reminder to all of those pilgrims traveling in for the Passover festivals about what happens to people who try to overthrow the Roman government. This hill here is a place that I think is Golgotha. There are a couple of places in Jerusalem that it could be, to me, and I don't have time to give you all the evidence, but to me, this just has to be it. Um, Just with the location, it's right by the road to Damascus as the road bends to go into what was the old city. It's right by an old trash dump. Uh, One of my friends and guides there years ago was involved in an excavation process, and they found a number of nails that had been bent over like they had been hammered into a cross and then bent over to keep hands or feet from pulling away from the cross. And this place was called the place of the skull. And it's, a lot of this has been chipped away and just fallen away over the years. But can you, can you make out what are eyes here? And that at one time looked like the bridge of a nose. But all of this area right in here at one time looked like a skull. There are places you can Google it. There are pictures out there that are, you know, 50, 75 years old where you can really see this even better than what you can tell in this picture. But again, it's a place that you can go to. It's a place that you can see this is real. These are not just once upon a time kinds of stories. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, where they crucified him. And with, and with him, two others, one on each side, um, and Jesus was in the middle. If you ever wonder why, usually when you see a presentation of crosses, you see one in the middle and then two on each side. It's because John says that Jesus was crucified and then one to each side of him. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, which was a normal thing. This is the person's death sentence. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, which is what the local Jewish people would have spoken. Latin, which is what all of the Roman soldiers that uh, were from uh, Italy and parts like that, and then also in Greek, so that the local Gentiles and other travelers could read it, so that everybody could see this. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. That's that's the end of it. I'm, I'm done with this. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, which is something they regularly would do. It was a momentum, a memento. It was a souvenir of 
their execution. Some of these men who were responsible for these things were just, they were madmen. One for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. It was the most valuable garment of clothing that Jesus would have worn. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So they gambled for us clothes. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Over over the years, I've heard people say, um, pastors, lots of Christians use this and I think it's wrong. But people will say something like, uh, preacher, there's two things I don't talk about. I don't talk about politics and I don't talk about religion. And both of those have gone to hell. Because Christians and preachers are too afraid to talk about politics. And because we don't talk about our faith, people are literally going to hell over it. So I'm not going to talk about the politics part of it right now, but I'll tell you this, that your faith in Christ is not meant to be a private issue. It's private in, the, in that we come to Jesus as individuals. You have to profess your own faith in Christ or not. You have to make a decision about what you will do with Jesus but if you become a follower of Jesus it's never supposed to be in private Jesus didn't die for you and me in private Jesus died for us right out in the open where everybody could see it he was crucified in the bend of a holiday highway as thousands and hundreds of thousands of people would eventually pass by. He was mocked. He was spat on. He was mistreated. And he did it all in a place that was so cosmopolitan that this inscription over his head had to be written in three different languages. Jesus didn't die for you in private. He died for you in public. And you should live for him in public. Your faith is not supposed to be something you beat people over the head with, but it's not supposed to be something that you hide away from people either. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, he'll say this several times throughout his gospel, And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to her, his mother, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Because Mary's going to need someone to take care of her. And so Jesus is saying, John, here's my mama. I want you to take care of her. Jesus is saying to his mama, This is maybe my best friend. This is someone I trust enough to look after you, which I think is interesting. It says, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home, which means that he took care of her. 
even when Jesus was in his greatest moments of agony, he was still thinking about other people. And I think there's a word here for pastors, for leaders inside the church, for volunteers. You know, sometimes you can get so busy doing ministry that you forget to minister to people. You get so busy with the stuff that comes along with ministry that you forget that people are what ministry is all about, being Jesus to people. Later, verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit not as one who had been killed, but one who allowed himself to die. Not as one whose life has been taken from him, but he gives up his life freely as a sacrifice. When he says it is finished, what he means is it is paid in full. We all owe God a sin debt that we could never repay. Jesus paid it for us. And now he's saying the work of God's salvation is finished. And I'd like to read just these last few verses before we close. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, which just makes me want to scream. What hypocrites. They're responsible for Jesus being on the cross, yet they don't want the bodies there. See, they're more concerned about what the outside looks like than the reality on the inside. On, on the outside, they looked like everything was okay, but they were really just filthy and ruined. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs because when they would break this person's legs who's hanging on the cross, they would suffocate and die quicker. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water and the mixture of blood and water was evidence that the person was dead. And then John says this in verse 35 as a way of saying, I was there, I know this is true. The man who saw it, which was John, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, and you don't have this on the screens, you'll just have to listen. 
Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away and, in fact, buried him in his own tomb. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. We'll read all about Nicodemus in the weeks to come. Nicodemus brought a mixture of of myrrh and aloe and about 50 pounds of spices. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was their way of embalming the body, which was really more just to keep the smell of the body down. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Golgotha is right next to a garden tomb. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been buried. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus' body there. And when they buried Jesus, they assumed they were burying their hopes, their dreams, their best friend. They walked away that day having no idea what would happen in just three days. They had no idea that there would be an empty tomb. But there is. Next week we'll celebrate that together. But today I want us to reflect on the old rugged cross and the death of Jesus. So if you'll pray with me and stand. We're going to sing the old rugged cross together and then be dismissed. Lord, we are so grateful for your sacrifice that we don't even know how to fully express it. Lord, we know that the cross in and of itself is a horrible instrument of death. And so, Lord, when we display a cross, when we sing about the cross, we're not trying to glorify an object of death. But we are expressing our gratitude for your death upon it. And Lord, now as we sing and before we dismiss, I pray that you would really help us to wrap our our lives around this sacrifice that you have made for us. And then, Lord, make us willing to go and live as a sacrifice for others that we could show them in practical ways the love you have for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let's sing together.